You're listening to the RSA Conference podcast, where the world talks security. Hello, listeners. Welcome to this edition of our RSAC 365 podcast series. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Casey Zirkus, content strategist with RSA Conference, and today I'm joined by Brian Foster, who will be discussing insecure control systems, software, and critical infrastructure. Before we get started, I want to remind our listeners that here at RSAC, we host podcasts twice a month, and I encourage you to subscribe, rate, and review us on your preferred podcast app so you can be notified when new tracks are posted. And now I'd like to ask Brian to take a moment to introduce himself before we dive into today's topic. Brian, over to you. Well, thank you, Casey. Uh, thank you for having me, and I'm very excited to be sharing information with your listeners about this topic today. So quick background on myself. I'm a classically trained engineer, used to be a controls engineer a long time ago, different lifetime. Kind of got bored of that world and, and really was drawn back to the world of cybersecurity. And since then, I've really found my my calling in, in the utility space and really helping with the the movement towards the grid of the future, if you will, or, you know, smart city or whatever catchphrase you want to grab for uh, the new technology that we're deploying into grid control systems these days. And with that, the security that comes with that. So that's what I'm here to talk about. I love that. And I, for one, appreciate very much that you have found your calling in this space because ever since reading Nicole Perloff's book a couple of years ago, I um, it is really just elevated my awareness of the need to protect this space, right? So thank you so much for joining us. I would love it if you could start by maybe explaining to our listeners what your perspective is on the current and future state of our critical infrastructure. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, so first, I think that it's something that we all depend on, right? Whether we really realize that or not. And I think a lot of people don't necessarily realize to what level they depend on their daily life, all of this this critical infrastructure, right? So when you come home and you flip that light switch and your lights come on, everything that goes into making that happen is really staggering when you're behind the scenes and you get to see that. And it's not just power, right? I talk a lot about power because that's the industry I'm in, but it's water, it's sewage, it's gas, it's all of these things that our modern life is fully dependent on and, and really can't get away from, but we take for granted all the time. And, you know, the current state of that is is really kind of one in which you know, we're seeing this massive increase in, in attacks uh, from the cyberspace and now even in the physical space as well. And we're really kind of unprepared for it in a lot of ways. And, and not everyone, like there's there's a variety of different levels of preparedness. But we're seeing that, you know, most operators are understaffed in security uh, for the, the world that has hit us unexpectedly, right? For such a long time, the utility space went completely unattacked. Um, we were kind of just left alone in our own little world, and, and that has dramatically and rapidly changed. So we're, we're really seeing this this sudden demand in our space for, for increased security, and it's, it's really a paradigm shift that we're all experiencing together one way or another. Um, but, you know, one of those things that we're seeing in that current state is that a lot of our mission-critical software is out of date. You know, the OT world, things tend to move slow. And a lot of it's kind of out-of-date software. Security was never built into it. So we're out there trying to deploy new software, and we're really finding that the future state of these things is that a lot of the software options out there really don't have the security in them either. 
Uh, you know, they're they're kind of dependent on old technologies. They have a lot of what we just generally consider security bad practices in them, right? So when when cybersecurity starts coming to the table and looking at all of this stuff that's running our mission critical, uh, critical infrastructure type equipment, it's kind of an interesting experience. We are finding that certainly some vendors and a lot of operators are really moving towards that increased security posture. And our future state's going to be a lot stronger security. Um, you know, some of the utilities are even on the leading edge of this movement and have really strong security postures today. But it's a hell of a battle to get there. And uh, that's, you know, that's what we're fighting day in and day out right now. Yeah. And, you know, for so long, many of the sort of industries within our critical infrastructure have confronted the, you know, natural disaster aspect of insecurity, right? And, you know, recently we had a power outage because of a major windstorm in Massachusetts. And, you know, we understand on a very uh, basic level how that affects our life. But how is our critical infrastructure impacted by insecure control system software? Interestingly enough, today, I would say the impact is relatively limited. Right. And it's not because there isn't potential there. It's because we see attackers get into control systems at, at major utilities and then stop before doing anything bad, if you will. Right. So they, they get in, they get to the point where they could shut power off. They could, in theory, cause physical damage. You know, certainly they could adjust water levels to be toxic and unhealthy. Um, but what we're seeing is that attackers kind of get to that level and then they stop. It's almost like a proof of concept, right? Can they do it? And then they don't do it. It's probably because it would be an act of war, right? To shut off power to a large portion of the United States or any other major country. Um, so that's probably the motivation of why we're seeing a largely limited impact. But I will tell you that we're, we're seeing a significant number of increase in the attacks. Uh, so there's, there's a lot more attacks going on. Uh, a lot more people trying to get past that perimeter security that really protects a lot of our critical infrastructure because that's unfortunately where a lot of the security ends is is at the perimeter. And uh, that, that perimeter is getting hit harder and harder. More people are getting through. But as of today, thankfully, um, we're, we're seeing most attackers kind of stop there. Our fear is that that's not going to last, right? At, at some point, we're going to see attackers not stop there anymore. It might be coming sooner rather than later, given all the geopolitical stuff that's going on right now in the world and uh, the kind of state that we're in. So we're we're really feeling the pressure of what the impact could be. So if, if it actually did happen, if an attacker didn't stop, you know, we're talking at the base level, loss of power, gas, water, et cetera, other services, internet outages, those kind of things. And they might be short-term, right? If it's a non-sophisticated attack, they might just simply open some breakers, shut off some valves, whatever it might be, and it's something that we can recover from pretty quickly. But it wouldn't have to be that sophisticated of an attack to start causing physical component damage inside of the grid or inside of water systems. There's a lot of opportunity, a lot of vulnerabilities in these older components that are out there to really cause actual physical damage to them with a cyber attack. And there's some really good research on that to kind of dive into the details if, if anyone's actually interested to go look. Um, but, you know, the, the real challenge that we see is even if they weren't to cause physical component damage, we may be finding ourselves in a position where if uh, an attacker comes in and they just shut off power to a whole bunch of things. 
Okay, well, we black start, we get back up. But how do we return to a state of good, right? If the systems that are controlling all of our major components are compromised, fundamentally compromised, flawed at the very basic level of security, how do we get back to a good state? We have to rely on that perimeter security. And if the perimeter is breached, then we either have to figure out a way to change our perimeter and increase its security or stay offline. So we're talking about isolated island operations, right? So it's completely separated from all of the modern stuff that we have in, in our critical infrastructure. Uh, you know, the, in California, right, the solar panels that are sitting on top of people's houses, we have no ability to communicate with those anymore and take them into consideration for grid control. The return to good is a, a big challenge um, in this kind of attack, because if we spin everything back up, we come back online, the attack just continues uh, until we can figure out how to kick them out or build a bigger fence or whatever it might be, because fundamentally, you know, having that insecure control system software that lacks even, even the basics of what we consider modern security, uh, like authentication, really puts us into a vulnerable state. So obviously, both the vendors and operators play a critical role in safeguarding our essential utilities. But what is each role? Are they distinctive from one another? Or would it look more like a Venn diagram where there are overlapping responsibilities in the center? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely some overlapping responsibilities, uh, but I tend to depict this more as a pyramid, right? So there's kind of a foundation of good security practices really at the software development level. And, and this is where we're not seeing a lot right now. Again, some vendors better than others, not here to plug any particular one, but uh, at the base foundation level where everything's built on top of is, you know, that good software development, building security in at the actual software level and and we're kind of lacking that so it makes the rest of the pyramid a lot harder to support but as we go to the next level it's having like really strong open source management and patch management practices uh, both of which are kind of also a vendor responsibility but do trickle into the operator responsibility as well um, you know if a vendor is putting out really good patches and, and the operators aren't picking it up that's kind of on them uh, but uh, really you know seeing uh, open source management, right? So different conversation, but there is a ton of open source software that goes into critical infrastructure control systems. And a lot of times that open source software goes unupdated, right? So it's using some old version, has known vulnerabilities, or just is lacking a significant amount of security patches. And then good patch management practice, right? So deploying those patches for open source software and deploying patches on a regular basis for any of the other software not open source that might be contained in a control system, so the proprietary stuff. Having that kind of regular patch management, so not once a year, not once every two years, not never, which we do see sometimes, but having you know monthly or at least quarterly regular patching to be deployed. And at the top of that pyramid is kind of that solid security practices of the operator itself. Right, so that really starts with just, just some of the basics, right? Having really good network architecture, uh, for example, not just having everything on a giant flat network, which is kind of the way of the past. It's something we all need to get away from. Some of us operators have done a lot more than others in that space, but we, we continue to fight that battle. 
Um, you know, having a strong set of security tools as well. Uh, tools by no means are magic bullets, and I, I don't recommend them without the people to run them. But uh, you know, having a good set of security tools and and really using them is very important. Having a mature monitoring program, so being able to use those tools to really monitor what's going on, both of the network and the application layer, and being able to respond to that is really important. Being able to deploy those patches, so if if your vendor is actually providing regular patch cadence, um, being able to deploy those patches on a, a quick cycle. You know, for us, that's probably more like 30 days, but uh, quick in our world, right? And having patch uptake is is really, really important. And then, you know, a strict enforcement of security standards. Uh, one of the things I really see uh, happen a lot is there'll be a, a really good security standard selected, maybe even developed internally, but the enforcement of it is really lacking in a lot of cases. Uh, they kind of have the standard and call it good, right? So it's it's the enforcement of that security standard and then most important for that top layer of the pyramid is having the skilled personnel to make it all work. Because, uh, I mean, ultimately, at the end of the day, security is people. Uh, like I said, there's there's no tool that's a magic bullet. There's no single solution that's going to solve all your problems. You have to have the people to run it. And really, you have to have the people that have the skill set to run it. And I think that's probably one of the biggest challenges that we're facing today is, is having that skill set. But that's, that's kind of what it looks like, right? At the bottom of the pyramid, you have this really good software development practices. In the middle, you have good patching and good open source management. And at the top, you have these solid practices of the operator. And there's a little bit of blending of responsibility between each layer. So I happen to have up our editorial calendar for the duration of 2023, and I'm looking at the topics of IoT security, human element supply chain, vulnerability management, threat modeling, and people process and technology. And you're touching on all of those in your response here. So we'll definitely have to have you back for more conversations. But in the Absolutely. meantime, I'm wondering how can the critical infrastructure operators proactively prevent the development and deployment of insecure control system software in the future? Yeah, so unpopular opinion of mine. It starts with the operators not buying bad software anymore. Um, right, so Simple fact. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> uh, so long as operators are out there spending money on bad software, what's the motivation to fix it, right? So the operators, we share plenty of the blame about the systems that are in place today. Um, most of the, you know, the operators, we we keep paying for this stuff. And, and it's, that's beginning to change. There's certainly a lot of shift towards bigger enforcement of security. But, but still, a lot of the operators are out there paying for it. Sometimes, even when they know that it doesn't have the security that it should have built into it. Because what's the other option, right? Especially the smaller operators, they're not going to be able to go out to these major vendors and, and influence them by themselves to make dramatic programming changes to their platform. It's a lot of work. Uh, so the industry kind of has to get away from this just accepting flawed security and mission-critical systems. It's it's a practice that's been around for a long time where we just kind of accept the software as it is. And uh, I think to really begin to change this, uh, to be proactive about preventing future attacks and, and events from having impact, we need to all start working together and stop buying the bad stuff and, and work with our vendors to really encourage and motivate them and help them along the way to develop a stronger foundation. And, you know, I think we really get to that point 
by developing strong security requirements. So, you know, in our RFPs and our contracts and all that, we really need to have in there, this is what we expect out of the software. This is the security that we need to have. And then we have to enforce those requirements with uh, really well-developed contracts, right? So our, our contracts have to be specific and they need to be enforced. And, you know, that, that's a big ask for a lot of the operators who are, you know, small municipalities or, you know, not, not some of the giant utilities that we're familiar with, right? But the, a lot of the smaller players. But there's really good resources out there. And uh, I'll say, so the Edison Electric Institute publishes a really great paper on this exact topic. I believe it's called the Model Procurement Contract Language Addressing Cybersecurity Supply Chain Risk. Pretty sure that's it. Um, long title. Really good document. It's available to the public, and it has like model requirements and the contract language to back those requirements up. And it's not just applicable to the electric industry. I think it's very uh, adaptable to basically all of critical infrastructure. So there's there's resources out there that even the smaller utilities could pick up and really begin to enforce these these stricter requirements on their software. So we really just need more folks in the critical infrastructure space doing this to apply greater pressure on the industry as a whole to adopt secure development practices and move us all forward. I love that you're echoing Director Easterly's sentiments from her CES conversation last week and, you know, that uh, we no longer can accept that software just is flawed at its core. We need to do more than that. And I think, you know, one thing that I'm hearing is that importance of partnership, right, and working together. And I know that historically, when I've had conversations with folks about ICS or cyber physical security, there seems to be this sentiment that there's just a limitation of what OT and IT and security teams can do within our critical infrastructure. So can you explain to our listeners, what are some of the best security practices that can and should be implemented at the foundation of the control systems? Yeah, absolutely. So first, that, that limitation, right? So the limitation really goes back to that pyramid. We we find ourselves as these OT, IT security teams trying to secure the cyber physical stuff, uh, being very like held back, right? So a real limitation. And, and it's that base layer of the pyramid, right? Because a lot of these control systems lack basic security features built in, like strong authentication, uh, both for the users and the machines. You know, we're seeing tons of applications that don't even have authentication at all. It will happily consume a directive from any source whatsoever and execute it with no question. In some cases, we're even seeing some that will take instructions to execute a script, right? So you say, hey, here's this PowerShell script. Could you run it for me? And applications will consume that. They'll go, sure, I'll run it as my privileged application user. And I don't even care who you are. And I don't care what's in the script. You know, so really having that strong authentication, integrity verification, you know, knowing what you're getting and, and is it legitimate when you're looking at messages and communications. Um, adequate logging, that's another thing that's really lacking from that base layer of the pyramid, if you will, is uh, adequate logging of all of the interactions that are going on, various operations being done by the applications, authentication or lack thereof that's occurring. So really having all that logging is kind of a foundation there as well. Um, strong configuration management's another one. 
right? So we're seeing a lot of applications that they have configurations, they don't really manage them. Anyone can kind of come in and change them. A lot of times configurations are even contained in flat files that are just kind of sitting out there in world readable folders. Uh, so there's there's some good opportunity for improvement there, right? Um, information protection, which it, it depends a lot on the size of the utility and their ability to, to deal with it, but really looking at encryption, even in the OT space, you know, certainly there's a path forward doing that. I think owning the encryption keys is very key there, but uh, looking at some information protection at the lower level, at the software level, and really having those secure patching practices, right? So that's that's what's causing the limitation is kind of the lack of these things. And there are also the things that we should look at for implementing, you know, at the foundation level for these control systems. And security teams uh, can really be very limited to basically just securing the perimeter because of this, right? So because these applications lack all of this foundational security structure, what we're seeing is that the security teams, those OTIT security teams trying to secure this stuff are just trying to build bigger and bigger walls around it. And there's there's real limitations there, right? Because if someone breaches the perimeter, they now own the system. And that's the real risk that we see with all of this insecure software. So, you know, the main focus on building a robust security foundation is going to be on improving the security posture of that hardware and software that makes up those critical systems. Uh, that's that's where the, the, the opportunity really is to implement better security in our control systems. So this takes us back all the way to those contracts and their enforcement, right? We really have to have good contracts in place, and we really do have to enforce them. If a vendor is unable to meet it, we need to make sure that they do meet it. Or, you know, we have to find a different way. So when it comes time for these operators to replace, upgrade, update, whatever it might be, their security or their applications, they need to bring in right from the start, right? They, they, they should be bringing security to the table even before the RFP. So the security team has an opportunity to put right into the RFP their requirements before it even goes out to the public and vendors can respond to it. That way they know what they're getting into, right? What is the expectation that they're going to have to meet to be able to have their product purchased? And we need to require those vendors when they do win those awards to really meet those strong security requirements. You know, if, if they come to the RFP and say, hey, we can't meet all these security requirements, guys, then, then we probably need to be looking at other vendors. Um, like I said earlier, I'm not here to plug any one vendor, but there are certainly some that do a lot better in this space than others. And I think one of the, the practices that has really held us back is that a lot of utilities tend to get locked into a single vendor Right. You know, we go out to bid and all that kind of stuff, but you'll see that, you know, any given utility seems to be mostly integrated with a single vendor. And it's it's usually because it's very challenging to have part of your system integrated with one vendor and a different part of your system integrated with a different vendor. Uh, so there's there's some real challenges to overcome there, but we're not going to move forward if we don't start enforcing these security requirements at a, at a much more stringent level. So that's that's really what it comes down to is that security requirements should be based on applicable standards that each operator has customized for their own needs, put into the, the RFP before they even get responses, and enforced through strong contractual language. I don't know, Brian. It kind of sounds like you're saying that the indelible line between OT and IT actually can be eradicated. I would say that from a technical perspective, 
OT and IT merged a really long time ago. Right, OT uses data centers. We use routable protocols. We're secured by the same basic practices as the IT space. I think that really that that only line that exists between OT and IT these days is actually more of a cultural one. And it's certainly been a challenge. We've all heard about how there's this huge divide and it's so hard to overcome and all of that. Uh, I don't think it's really there. And I think that historically, like a long time ago, yeah, there was a pretty big divide. The technology used in OT versus the technology used in IT were drastically different. Uh, Today, they're not. I mean, we're deploying containers out to the edge now, right? We're putting containers inside of little hardware boxes that we rack mount out in substations. You know, the data centers that are controlling everything are moving to hyper-virtualized systems and containerized operations. I mean, it's the technology is, is largely the same. One of the big differences that does exist is the speed at which we move, right? OT is always a lot slower than IT is. Um, but that's not really some impenetrable difference, right? That's just kind of a, a, a difference in speed in which we adopt things. So that, that cultural divide, the one that does actually exist, can easily be kind of a, addressed and overcame, if you will, largely by first bringing everyone to the same table, right? We, we have to realize that everyone's trying to do the same thing. Our goal, regardless of what role we might be in, is to operate in a safe manner and supply the necessary services to people. That's what we're all trying to do. We're just trying to provide those services and we're trying to do it in a safe way. You know, together, different groups can build from that same foundation, the realization that we're all trying to do the same thing. And ultimately, at the end of the day, I think the biggest thing that folks need to realize about OT security is that it is safety. That's all OT security is. It's a safety practice. Uh, we preach safety as as much as any of our other OT counterparts. And, and that's really what we're trying to do. We're trying to provide a safe operation environment that maintains the, the services that we're providing to people. Uh, and, and that's what it's all about. So, you know, the, the divide that's historically been there, I think has long ago technically gone away. And now we just kind of have this residual leftover kind of, well, there's a divide. So we have to talk about the divide, right? But I just don't <laughs> think it's actually there anymore. I think right. that it's 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 just in our heads now and we're keeping it alive because uh, because that's where we, we remember it being. <laughs> well, that's the people part of it, right? <laughs> we have to change <laughs> yeah. the narrative of the people. Um, Brian, thank you so much for being here. Before we wrap up, do you have any additional words of wisdom that you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I would say, you know, just like I mentioned, the OT space is is kind of slow moving, but we're getting there, right? Everything is going along. There's a lot of motivation, a lot of push to go in the right direction now. One of the constants that we do see, though, between all the different verticals in the OT space is that that rate of change is increasing. So we're not as able to be as slow moving as we were historically anymore. And that's really pushing us towards uh, an increased opportunity right now to be able to build very strong security foundations into our, our fundamental layer, right? That software layer, that, that firmware layer, to really be able to build it in because we're seeing a lot of change. Uh, you know, historically, if, if a piece of software was running for 20 years, we may have another decade before we had an opportunity to update it. But right now, there's a pretty big push for, you know, wide scale across the board updates and upgrades. So it's, it's a really good time to go out there and grab that to start enforcing 
strong security. And I strongly encourage everyone out there in the utility space and in the vendors that, that provide for the utilities to really be moving in this direction because we want to really avoid being stuck in the same insecure situation for the years and possibly decades to come if we don't take the opportunity now to go out and build for a stronger future. I love that. Thank you so much. Listeners, thank you for tuning in. To find products and solutions related to application security and critical infrastructure, we invite you to visit rsaconference.com forward slash marketplace. Here you'll find an entire ecosystem of cybersecurity vendors and service providers who can assist with your specific needs. Please keep the conversation going on your social channels using the hashtag RSAC and be sure to visit rsaconference.com for new content posted year round.